All right, we'll be in Psalm 95, everyone. Uh, and let me read that with you. Uh, actually, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Okay. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as, the one, as, the one, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they may have seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that, the generation, loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore... I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Thanks. Well, it's great to be with you all again. Again, this is, uh, it feels like home for me. I recognize a lot of you from way back, and I get to come here occasionally and be with you. So it's a gift to me. So thank you for having me. Um, you know, I've discovered recently that I have a superpower. <laughs> yeah, no, that's quite a discovery. Uh, here's what I can do. Um, I can actually, if I wake up in the middle of the night, or even wake up in the morning, I can pretty much guess the time within like five, ten minutes. It's incredible. I, 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 in fact, yesterday, I woke up and I said to myself, and I don't usually choose round numbers. I mean, it can be anything. <laughs> but I said to myself... I think it's 7 o'clock. And I looked over, and it was 7 o'clock. Unbelievable. Um, it's uncanny. And uh, now, I have asked around. It turns out I'm not alone in this. It turns out that a lot of people can do this. Um, and in fact, it is so common that uh, scientists who study time says that you and I have these kind of internal clocks. Um, we can not only kind of guess pretty accurately sometimes what time it is before we turn to the clock, but we also can kind of gauge the passage of time. We know about what 20 minutes feels like. We know about what 45 minutes feels like, and that feels different from an hour. And we have this ability to uh, track with the time. Um, and it's because our bodies are actually quite literally, quite biologically kind of set to a rhythm that is uh, kind of largely uh, the result of thousands of days of the sun rising and the sun setting. Um, that is, in fact, the major clock by which most of us live. They call it our circadian rhythm. Our circadian rhythm is the attunement of our body to the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun. They say there's no other light quite like daylight. And daylight kind of keeps resetting our clock to this kind of rhythm. Uh, even our hormones and our internal organs are actually on some type of clock. 
they operate that. Um, so I recently returned from Europe, uh, and uh, of course I experienced once again jet lag. I know you've experienced jet lag, and I'm here to tell you jet lag is not just in your head. In fact, what's happened, of course, is that your body has become desynchronized with the different kind of sun rises that you've experienced. They say it takes a day of recovery for every hour shift in time zone. I was nine hours away, so it takes people like that about a week and a half to get on it. But it's because your internal clock, having been reset a little differently over uh, in another place, that it takes time for you to get back on the same rhythm. Scientists call this our temporal orientation, our temporal orientation. And it's not really something we have to think about. It's something, again, the sun, which is kind of the great clock, automatically attunes us to. I'll tell you what doesn't come naturally. What doesn't come naturally and what we have to work harder at is what I'm going to call a divine orientation, which is living each day in time with God. We're pretty good at what's called chronos, which are the hours and minutes that we've divided each day up into. We're pretty good at detecting chronos, but what in, in Greek thought is called kairos, which is God actually meeting with God and being present to God throughout the day. That's something we have to work at. We're good with chronos. We have to work at kairos. This morning, I want to offer you Psalm 95, so if you're not there, please turn in your phones to Psalm 95. <laughs> I know there's no going back, so. <laughs> Psalm 95 is historically one of the morning psalms in Christian liturgy. So if you're raised on any kind of prayer book, Book of Common Prayer, if you're raised in a liturgical setting, and you went to the section of the book that had the morning psalms for the day, there's usually about four of them. Psalm 95 is one of them. It's one of the psalms we are meant to wake up to the world and not just to enter Kronos, but to enter Kairos, a meeting with God. Not just to be woken up by the sun, but be woken up by the daylight, but to be woken up by God's light. In fact, I remember what C.S. Lewis said, and it's probably one of his most oft-quoted um, passages. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. How do we live in a day in which the light that not only wakes us, but attunes us to a divine orientation is the light by which we see everything in our day? So let's revisit Psalm 95, and let me read the first five verses. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The first word uh, here is, in my translation at least, come. Uh, it could be translated move. It could be translated go. Uh, but indeed, that's the reality of our lives when we wake up, right? We're always now going, we're moving. And what the psalmist wants to say here is, here's one of the things you want to move toward first. You want to move first toward God. You see, our life is a moving all day long, right? Our life is a going out, and we continually present ourselves to the next thing, to, to breakfast, to uh, some work on email, to an appointment. We are moving, always moving toward things, and things are always moving toward us. Indeed, time itself, which still is kind of a mystery, 
actually, time turns out to be how we move motion, how we move, in a sense, through time. And indeed, that's our reality. We are constantly moving through time. And here the psalmist says, here's your first move each day. Oh, come, sing to the Lord. Um, Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. What is it to move toward the God of salvation? Well, salvation for the Hebrews is a really broad term. It really meant rescue from anything you needed rescue from. For them, it would have been things like illness, battle, shipwreck. Um, Certainly, it would be more than just what we might call spiritual. It's where every place where our human capacities are just not enough, where you and I feel out of our depth, we need salvation. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. Um, And so not only do we have daily needs, in a sense, to be rescued, not only is life often too much for us, but of course, God is the God of our salvation because we live in a history of salvation. God, in time, is acting to save. And of course, this is true spiritually, right? So we're accustomed to thinking of salvation as being saved from our sin, to be cleansed so that we can spend eternity with a God who is holy. But salvation in Scripture is also much broader than that. God is here to save the whole world. So let me be clear about this. We have been saved. That's called justification. You and I have been saved, and we call that justification on the basis of Christ. We will be saved. At the end of time, we will actually be completely restored to be in God's presence. We call that glorification. So we have been saved, justification. We will be saved, glorification. But in the meantime, we are being saved. And that's called sanctification. God is in the business now, since early on in the fall, of restoring all things to the rightful place, to shalom. Saving is important to God's larger plan. Um, I like how the Orthodox think of sin. They think of sin as sickness. Remember when Jesus says, I have not come to heal those that are well, but I've come to heal the sick? The Orthodox take that quite seriously. They see us all as a little bit sin sick. We're always a little bit ill with sin. We all need to be saved. In fact, Eugene Peterson said the best translation in most places for salvation, because he translated the whole Bible, is healing. The best translation is healing. We're all a little bit sin sick. You know, I'm at work, I'm on a time card, you know, and, I, and the most common categories for days off are vacation and sick days. So I take a vacation, you know, I got to mark the days, and some of you are on that same paper. And uh, they should have, like, sin days, too. <laughs> you know, the reason why you don't come in when you're sick is because it might infect other people. Please stay away. Take a sick day. Well, you know, on days when I'm particularly in the flesh, I should have that option. I'm taking a sin day. Not a day to sin, just I need to be healed a little bit before I infect other people <laughs> with my anger, my impatience, my sin. So Jesus is in the business of saving us from ourselves, but not just ourselves. He wants to save our, our ways of doing things. And this is, this is what people mean by when they call about systemic sin. Systemic sin are how we have done things and they've been built into the system, and now that's just how the system runs. Systemic sin, you might, in the justice system, might be systemic sin. In the corporate system, there might be systemic sin. Um, Just the way you and I do things culturally, uh, we go with the crowd, that could be a kind of systemic sin. 
Lord wants to save us from those things as well. We know even the earth, we're told in Romans 8, is groaning for its redemption. Remember that passage? The earth is groaning for restoration. And, and we need to be saved most of all because we are the ones who create the systems and we are even the ones who impact nature. In other words, the world in some sense needs to be saved from us. And so our salvation is extremely important, not just for us individually, but for God's plan of saving the whole world. And so when we wake up in the morning and we begin our, our journey through Kronos, the half-hour appointment, the 45-minute task, the 30-minute drive, we also want to enter Kairos, which is to enter an awareness that we are participating with God in the history of salvation, of restoring all things what they could be. And so we wake in the morning and we make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation because we know that that is what God is doing in the world. And in verse 3, the psalmist says, we don't just wake to the God of our salvation, but we awake to our God and King. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. It's not just that God is like one God among many gods and it's kind of a tournament of gods and, you know, the best man wins type of thing. No, we're told here that he is the great God over all gods. And of course, there are no other gods really, but in practice, of course, as Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. Everybody's serving somebody. Everybody's got a God. And God is, can be the great, should be the great king above all those gods. The great king. So not just the God of our salvation, but the king. I'm reminded that, uh, well, I was, just in, I was just in Rome. I was overseas, as I said. And, uh, and, you know, Paul's writing the letter of the Romans. He hadn't even been there yet. He's probably writing to a church of about 50 people. And, you know, as I was walking around Rome, of course, most of it's in ruins, but I had a chance to imagine the built environment back in the day, right, the first century, and it would have been intimidating. It would have been awesome. If you were a peasant coming in from the countryside of Italy and you stepped into the Roman Forum or looked at the Colosseum or went to the Colosseum, opening weekend, by the way, Colosseum, they slayed 4,000 animals. That's power. If you were a peasant coming in, you would just be, oh my gosh, Caesar is king. You know, the Romans were kind of brilliant in how they took over the Mediterranean world, the known world. They would, they would conquer people, and they, they would let everybody bring their gods in. So that was part of the genius. Like, well, you can keep your own gods, you know, just import them, you know. And, um, but, but Caesar had to be king above all gods, right? That was the deal. Well, here Paul's writing to these 50 people who look out their windows, so to speak, and they see the Colosseum, they see the Roman Forum. They can see the, the Pantheon. The Pantheon, which actually is, is, is nicely preserved to this day, means all gods. Pan, all, theon, gods, all gods. They can look out their window and Paul's saying, you know, Jesus is the great king. In fact, he says in the opening verses of Romans, you know, before Caesar, there was Jesus. In the sense that not only was he the word who created the world, but he was also the prophesied king, the descendant of David, prophesied by the prophets. Before Caesar, there was Jesus. And so he's telling these young Christians in Rome, he is the king above all kings. He's even, the, the sea is even his, for he made it. The sea would have been the most um, frightening natural element to the ancient people. The sea was unpredictable. Um, Ships were uh, capable of being capsized and sinking, and you just didn't never know what was below the surface. Of course, there's the great kind of uh, uh, image of Leviathan, this great sea animal that lurked below the surface that could swallow you up and spit you out in three days if you were lucky. Um, and, and God says to Job, by the way, I made Leviathan. 
I own the sea. And so here now we have this God as creator, not just God as salvation, not just God as king, but God as creator. He made it. He owns it. That's hard for us, such ownership, to imagine. I imagine we own things. We have possessions. Uh, we have businesses, maybe. Um, but in the back of our minds, we have this fear that this could be taken away from us, and it could be, through fire, through innovative disruption, they call it. Um, so it's hard for us to imagine something that can't be taken away from someone, but the earth cannot be taken away from God. He made it. He owns it. So you're getting the po- point, right? The psalmist wants us to wake up each morning, stepping into Kairos. God is God of salvation. He is restoring things. He was the creator. But creation is not just a one-time event, but it's something he holds. We're told the depths of the earth are in his hands. He tells Job, if I were to withdraw my breath, everything would disappear. He is the God, the creator, the king, and the recreator. He is restoring all things. If you're like me, though, you don't always wake up this way with this confidence, this peace, the sense that God is saving the world. He owns it, that it's all going to be okay. We wake up nervous. Here's, here's the thing. God is not nervous. Take that in for a moment. God is not nervous about the future. You and I don't wake up that way. We more often wake up like C.S. Lewis write, writes. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning, he says. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. <laughs> That's how my days begin. Not just my wishes and hopes, but my anxieties, my concern, my unresolved things, my mistakes, my errors. They all rush at me like wild animals. They kind of sit around my bed at night. <laughs> see if I can get to sleep with these cattle standing there around my bed, looking at me bovinely. It's nice to be in a context where I can say bovinely. You don't get to say it too much. And then I go to sleep, I'm off into some weird dream world where I'm, certainly I'm still processing them with some bizarre plots. I wake up, I look up, first thing I see is the cattle looking at me bovinely. <laughs> all the unresolved things in my life, all my worries, all my anxieties, they're looking at me. So Lewis says, all your wishes and hopes rush at you like wild animals, but the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life Come flowing in. It is the first five verses of Psalm 95. We wake up, we say, God is not nervous. He is working salvation. He owns it. It will be accomplished. He is the creator and he is the king. And we step into our day wanting to cooperate with that saving that takes place around us. So then... What is the next thing we are to wake up to? It is verses 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. For some of you, you're hearing the song, right? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. 
for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand, just the sheep of his hand. So in verses 1 through 5, God is the cosmic creator. He is the king. He is eminent. But in verses 6 and 7, he's the shepherd right with us. He is imminent. He is both eminent and imminent. He is our shepherd. We wake up every day not only to the cattle around our bed, but to the presence of the shepherd with us. Sheep are the most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible with nearly 400 references, if we include flocks. And now I quote directly from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Quote, Sheep are completely dependent on shepherds for protection, grazing, watering, shelter, and tending to injuries. Sheep are not only dependent creatures, they are singularly unintelligent. Still, the dictionary of biblical imagery. Prone to wandering and unable to find their way to a sheepfold, even if they see it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is our spirit animal. Fortunately, the focus here is more on the shepherd. <laughs> and of course, the kind of ideal king in Israel's memory was David, who was a shepherd king. So Psalm 95 brings us God as also the shepherd king. You'll, of course, hear an echo of Psalm 23 in this, that God is the shepherd who leads us beside still waters, who restores our souls, who leads us in paths of righteousness, who guides us toward goodness and mercy which follow us all the days of our lives. This is what a shepherd does. You know, of course, that shepherd was Jesus' favorite metaphor for himself in relationship to us. He calls us his sheep. Um, he says he knows his sheep by name. I was just talking with someone in the first service afterwards. Her name is Pearl. Do you know Pearl. Pearl, oh yeah, everyone knows Pearl. Well, she's in her 90s, so I, I, and uh, Pearl said her dad was a shepherd. How often does that happen? I'd love to go into a job interview and say, so what do you do? I'm a shepherd. No, not many of us are shepherds. But she said this was exactly right. She's telling me after the first service, he could f call out sheep by name. He said, oh, see that sheep? And he's pointing like one in 300. That one has a bad right leg. Wow. Jesus has that kind of relationship to us. Of course, he is the shepherd king over all of Israel. They are the sheep collectively, but he seems to know our individual names. And we're told that if we walk with him, we could recognize his voice. And any event in that chapter, John 10, where he poses himself as the shepherd to us, he says, I have come that you may have life. I want to lead you to life. So what does the person do who wakes not only with a temporal orientation moving toward Kronos, but a divine orientation Seeking to meet God in time in Kairos, what do we do? 
we not only awake and rejoice in the God of our salvation, the King and the Creator, but we also worship and bow down. We worship and bow down knowing that we need his guidance, knowing that he's leading us to life. And, of course, that his rod and his staff not only comfort us but are a symbol of authority, that he knows. And it's a little dangerous, like it would be for a sheep, not to travel in those paths of righteousness. We open to God each morning. We submit to him. You know, I imagine if you're like me, you wake up and you just have a ton on your plate. You already have an agenda for the day, right? You have responsibilities, appointments, tasks, you have aspirations. And we hope and trust that the things that we do each day are, in fact, the will of God. Uh, I tell my students, you don't have to ask about this. It's the will of God for you to go to class. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Gainful employment, that is the will of God, right? When the Thessalonians thought Jesus was going to come soon, they stopped working. Paul had to write them a letter. You had to write them two letters. Go back to work. <laughs> Caring for families should be on our agenda. That's good. Showing hospitality, that's good. Basic hygiene, will of God. <laughs> Managing our lives and those who depend on us. These are all the will of God. We have an agenda, and we hope for the most part this agenda is the will of God. But you know what the sheep do a little bit? They realize that there's more on the agenda than appears. There's, there's always more than appears on our agenda. And we may not even know what it's going to be, but when you live with Kairos, you live with a God who intervenes in time, intervenes in the day, there's always a little more on the agenda than you had planned. There's colleagues whose suffering is not on the agenda. There is the right thing to do that is not on a company's policies. There's moments of wonder and thanksgiving that aren't usually on our to-do list. There's listening to someone else when we had planned on speaking. There's the dying to selfishness when we actually had on our list to avoid pain. What we look for each day as sheep, knowing the shepherd is present and guiding us, we look for what might be added to this agenda, and we call it the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is often encoded in commandments, as you heard last week from a colleague of mine, Rick Langer. These are Psalm 23's paths of righteousness. And I think we sometimes forget that the commands of God are actually those. The commands of God are a vision of the good life. But we sometimes think they're arbitrary commands, and I think especially that's often the view outside the churches, that what is this God who has, has these arbitrary commands for living? No, it's a vision of the good life. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine living in a community in which there was such generosity that people would walk two miles with someone, maybe, instead of one. Where people would um, uh, forgive um, rather than seek vengeance. Where there was no adultery. Where there was no coveting. The commands are a vision of the good life. And the shepherd is here each day to say, walk this way. I am offering you life. And so how do we wake up to the day? Well, he is our creator, he is our king, he is our recreator, he is our salvation, and he is our shepherd. And we say, Lord, I open to you, I submit to you. How do we do that? Well, that's in the last part, verses 7b to the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. 
when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Um, in what is otherwise a fairly encouraging psalm, this is a fairly salty ending. Um, it's a warning. The reference actually is the two passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Both happen during the Exodus, which of course is God's saving of his people over Pharaoh. Remember, he's both God of salvation and king. He can do these things. He's creator. He can also part waters. He is in the midst of saving them, but they do find themselves in the desert, and they understandably are asking for water. And so they complain to Moses in Exodus 17. Moses does the right thing. He goes to God. And God says to him, and I quote, Take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. And then he tells him to strike a rock and water will come out. And so Moses does this and water comes out and the people are good for a while. Later on in Numbers 20, a similar scenario occurs. Now they're in the desert near Kadesh. It's hot and dry. They're getting thirsty and they're getting a little rebellious. Why did God bring us all this way? They forget his goodness. They don't come before his presence with thanksgiving, as verse 2 of Psalm encourages us to do. And they complain again to Moses. He does the right thing. He goes to God and asks what he ought to do. Now, you remember the first time God told him to use his staff to strike a rock. And the staff for Moses was this go-tool tool. It was like an app. It could do anything. Right? So it, 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 it filled the Nile with blood to put pressure on Pharaoh. It swallowed all the other staffs of Pharaoh's magicians. Uh, it uh, helped part the Red Sea as he held it up. It, as he held his arms up with a staff, it helped them defeat the Amalekites. Right? This tool had been kind of this go-to system, this thing that God had told him to use. This time in Numbers 20... God says to Moses, okay, go and speak to the rock, not hit it with your staff. But when the time came, either Moses unconsciously or consciously lifted up his hand and struck the rod, rock twice with his rod. And the Lord said to Moses, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given him. You know, I've read this several times before, and it's often struck me as just over the top. I mean, okay, he hit the rock instead of he spoke to it. Big deal. You disqualify him for leadership based on this? Well, what happened? Well, apparently for God, listening is pretty important. Moses just had stopped listening. He had gone with what had worked before. He'd gone with a tool that was like a jackknife, all purpose. And God says, you know, I don't think you can take them forward if you're not listening. You know, I imagine uh, you're like me, you live a lot of your life on automatic. We've got to live a certain amount of life on automatic. You ever drive to work and think, can I stop at those red lights? 
how did I get here? It's like talking heads, right? Is this my wife? Is this my house? Anyway, how did I get here? That is not in my script. I got to be careful about going off script. We live a lot of our life on automatic and we have to. But the problem is sometimes, you know, having done what works, we just kind of keep doing what works. Notice that even though Moses disobeyed God, he, water still came out of the rock at Kadesh. Moses was still allowed to be perceived as successful. And that's a scary thought. We can continue to do what's always worked in our relationships, in our companies, um, in raising our families. We can do what always works. And we may experience a certain amount of success. But in God's eyes, we may have stopped listening. We become autonomous. Because, hey, it's always worked before. I've got it, God. Well, apparently, what's important to enter Kairos is to keep listening. Otherwise, you're just in Kronos. You're just ticking off the hours. And God is not allowed to enter. A lot of us have anxieties or anxious people around us. If you're leaders of any kind, people are always anxious around you. They're like Moses' people. They're always saying, fix this problem or this is going wrong. And as leaders, many of you, and you're all leaders, even if you're uh, involved in a family, sometimes their anxiety causes us just to fix it. And we stop listening to God. Listen. Okay. That happens to me too. Um, I should be prepared for moments like this, but I'm not. So, props, and in, uh, one thing I guess I think I've noticed is that one of the things I've done automatically is consume. It's systemic, right? I buy what other people buy. I consume what other people consume. I swear there's an Amazon box at our door every other day. <laughs> Boxes, plastic. I go, I can't do takeout without getting plastic. Somebody made this plastic. Somebody spent uh, fuel on this plastic. I have it for 10 minutes and I throw it away. It's called single-use plastic. Oh, my gosh. I, I occasionally drink smart water. Not smart. <laughs> that bottle's going to last for 300 years, long after I'm dead. It might even exist whole like that. If not, it'll break up into particles and go into the water, and it'll end up every seabird, every seal. Then it'll get into our water, change our hormones. I'm not talking about climate change. Don't freak out. Everybody take a breath. <laughs> We're not even that far yet. But no, I just go along with it. It's always worked before. Economy's doing great, isn't it? I don't have to worry about that. As long as the economy's doing great, then everything, God must be blessing us. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. And so now I'm asking God, you are the creator. In fact, the very first command was to preserve the garden. Lord, in what way am I just living on automatic? Am I still listening? The very first command. And this is just an example. But it's an example in my life of tapping the rock again. It's like one-click Amazon shopping. I'm a one-click shopper. In the end, the psalmist says that God says, even though 
He led the people ultimately to the promised land, even though he's ultimately king, even though he's ultimately salvation. He, these people, he said, will not enter my rest. Boy, we all want rest, don't we? Every time I ask people, how are you doing? Busy. So busy, so busy. So tired. You know, I'm convinced that most tiredness is not actually physical tiredness, although that exists. And it's not jet lag. It's, um, it's resisting God. <laughs> it's having to deal with darkness. Or it's even just the pressure that comes with uncertainty every day. Each thing has its own pressures. We want rest. What is rest? In the Bible, rest is shalom. It's when all things are in right relationship to all other things. Our institutions to God, our relationships with another, our relationship to the earth. When all things are in right relationship, it's called shalom in the Bible, which we commonly translate as, anybody? Peace. Wow. This is available each day, peace of God, as we cooperate with God's work. I know of no better way than enacting Psalm 95 than to just wake up in my bed in the morning to let my circadian rhythm wake me up, my clock be reset by daylight. And it's in my favor that I don't want to get out of bed because it gives me a moment for prayer. And I just lie there. And I present myself to God, which Paul says, is your sacrifice of worship. Romans 12, 1. Present yourself as living sacrifices. Remember, the bed looks kind of like an altar. Stay there. Present your body as living sacrifices. And then he says, for this is your service of worship. This is the first thing you do. This is an act of worship to lie in your bed and present yourself to God. Present yourself to him as creator. He owns it. Rejoice that he owns it and cannot be taken away. Present yourself to God as king and his kingdom. Present your God as recreator and step into to salvation time, into kairos. Let yourself experience a daily divine orientation. You know what's great about the day? It comes every day. You get to practice this over and over again. And so now my liturgy is Psalm 95 in the morning. I read through it. I memorized it. I present myself to God as creator, king, and recreator. I submit myself as a sheep of his hand, and I look for what else may be on his agenda during the day. I stay awake to the shepherd who wants to lead me into life, and I try and listen. And you know how I try and listen? I just occasionally hesitate in my day. I say, Lord, I'm about to move back into the same old rhythm, and I trust that is good, but I'm just going to hesitate for a moment and just listen. Is this still the right way to do things? Often I'll use transition time, driving, instead of playing the radio or talking the phone. I'll say, oh, I just did this, and I'm going to do this. Lord, I'm open. If I'm waiting in a line for a coffee, Lord, I, I'm not going to be on my phone. I'm just going to open for a second. Is there anything you're speaking? Remember the psalmist says, if he should speak today, maybe every day you won't hear a message, and frequently it'll just come through the remembrance of Scripture, but Lord, if you want to speak, I'm open. And you know, I want to say if you do this, if you live your days in kairos, expecting to live it in time with God, with regard to your spiritual formation, the day is enough. Done a thousand times in succession, the day is enough to shape you into the image of God. And if we do so, we will be divinely oriented. 
and we'll participate in not only God's ongoing saving of ourselves, but saving of the people around us and his world. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite the worship leaders back up.